0: Um, so if you're joining us for the first time uh, in these last several weeks, uh, what we've been doing is journeying through a, a, a season of Advent, um, and we've kind of explained that uh, every week, what that word means, what we're talking about when we say that, and, and, and really what we're trying to do is just uh, cultivate this, this moment of expectation, right, that the, the Advent, the coming, the arrival of Jesus Christ, right, and so we celebrate what has happened um, a few thousand years ago, at the birth of Jesus, we do that at Christmas. Um, but what we don't want to do is, and, you, and I just prayed this over all of us this morning, is to to compartmentalize Christmas into one day or one season in our lives, where that's where we focus on Jesus uh, and maybe even just the birth of Jesus, um, and then we walk away from that moment and we kind of go back to business as usual. Um, and so, Advent is a time for us as a church. As believers in Jesus, and those of you who may be questioning whether you believe in Jesus or those who uh, completely reject Jesus, this, is all, this, is, this moment is uh, uh, created for us to just shift our focus, to shift our hearts, to shift our minds, to remember that, yes, Jesus has come, the Savior of the world has been born unto us to come and save, and he will be coming again. Like the, the Advent, we're, we say this every year, we're between two Advents, right? The arrival of Jesus has come in the form of the baby, and then, and then the arrival of Jesus will return as king and lord and ruler um, over his kingdom. And so we wait with hopeful expectation for that moment. And so this is just a time for us to... To, um, to journey through scripture and, to, and this year, what we did was uh, something um, that I would asked, and I love uh, the way David and Trent and Joey they entertain my humor. by they, they allow me just to say here here 's the text we 're going to preach here, here 's the text we 're going to preach there, and they just go with it, and they do such a wonderful job. And so this year, what we wanted to do was pick up moments in the Old Testament. Right? The Old Testament is, is something that was pre, uh, pre-Jesus, right? the, the moment that Jesus was born as a human. Jesus was always there, but as a human, the Old Testament was uh, 4,000 plus years before his arrival. Um, that, that, that we see these promises that God has made throughout the Old Testament. And so what we did was we picked up moments, and all of these moments connected. I don't know if you made those connections, but what we wanted to first look at was the, the rescue that was so desperately needed for God's people. Um, and that's where we went to Exodus, and David walked us through that moment um, where, where God is going to provide rescue. He's going he's gonna to provide um, He's going to provide a, a way for us to, to, into freedom to be free. Um, and then we looked and, and saw him, uh, where, where uh, Joey walked us through that moment where, where it's just this, this hopeful longing, right? And that's the, if I could theme the entire Old Testament, what I would say is that the theme is hopeful longing, just a hopeful expectation and a longing for the, for the Christ to come, the one that God had promised, knowing that we are separated from him in our sin, but that God's promise was that he was going to send a son, that he was going to make a way. And so in the Old Testament, they were just waiting and waiting for this moment, waiting for this advent, this arrival, this coming of the promised Messiah. And then Trent last week took us uh, through Isaiah, where the prophet and, and This is this is most important. The most important connection, I I believe, is that Isaiah gives us a a, a prophecy of this king, of the one that God is going to send. And what I want you really to remember as we dive into where we're going this morning, because we're jumping into New Testament this morning, and the reason we're doing that is exactly uh, it's exactly related to what happened. Uh, with the prophecy of Isaiah where he said this this king who is to come. He's the one he's going to be a wonderful counselor He's going to be a mighty God. He's going to be an everlasting father He's going to be a prince of peace like all of the things that were hope we were hoping for all the things that we hope for today That's what we want in a king and Isaiah saying this is the king all his power all of his majesty all of his might That's the king that God is going to send to rescue and redeem. And the reason why we're jumping where we are today is because what I want you to see is just how foolish God's plan is. How foolish his plan, in our minds, how we feel, it's so foolish what he did. Because he came in full humility. And that's the entire theme of our text this morning is that, that we see all throughout the Old Testament this, this hopeful longing for this strong and powerful and mighty King and this everlasting Father, this Prince of Peace, is going to come in a, a, an amazing display of, of humility. And so that's been my prayer over these few weeks is that you've been able to kind of track with us. And if you haven't, I'm going to invite you. Go, go look back at these messages online um, because they all connect to one another. And I want you to imagine for a moment, before we jump into the text, I'm going to use a New Testament text here in just a minute to kind of get us moving, but we're going to look at a few different places. Um, but what I want you to do is imagine for a moment that you are with some of your most creative friends, some of your most thought-provoking friends, the ones who, whose minds are expanded, they can think outside the box. I want you to think about that group of people that, that you're with. And I want you to imagine that this does not exist. You have no recollection. You don't know anything about Scripture. This doesn't exist at all. Now imagine in that moment that you were with some of the most brightest people that you know. You, you, you have no reference to Scripture whatsoever. No Bible. It's never been provided. And imagine that you are Living in occupied territory. And what I mean by occupied territory is that the world is a beautiful place. The place, your community, your, your, your region, your world is a beautiful place, but it is utterly broken. That there's brokenness all around. There's, there's, the, there's beauty, but there's brokenness within that. Imagine that you're there and you're in occupied territory by, by the forces right that, that, are, that are sin, Satan, and death. That the the area that you belong to and that your friends belong to is occupied by darkness, by sin. And God comes to your group of people. God comes to your group of friends, and he asks you to devise a plan. To come up with a plan. Think about what you're going to do. Devise a strategy for invading this territory. To push out the occupation. And it's up to you and your friends to give God that plan to give him the, the, the groundwork, the strategy for what you're going to do and try to refrain from using any scripture because remember, it doesn't exist. What would you do? What are some things that come to mind, with you and your friends, some ways that you might be able to go to God and say, this is how I think we should do this. This is how I think we can, we can force out the enemy. This is how I believe that we can break this whole thing up. I know for me, it's probably going to look like a shock and awe campaign uh, where, where we're just going to completely obliterate the enemy and all the places where they exist. And we're going to use massive force. It's like, God, I want you to flex on all the evil in this world. That's what I want you to do. Like How many other people think like that? I, I think that way. I think, I think I'm not the only one that thinks that way. If we're going to push out an enemy, enemy if we're going to drive out someone who hates us, who is out to destroy us, well, that's the way I want to do it. I want to use force. I want to push out. I want, to, I want God to flex on him. And so, consider Christmas. Consider the moment that, Christ, that, that God delivers on his promise. Consider God's invasion into humanity. That's what Christmas is. It is God's invasion into enemy-occupied territory, into humanity. It doesn't look at all like the Allied forces storming the beach at Normandy and Omaha, does it? It doesn't look at all like that. It doesn't look like a shock and awe campaign in the Middle East. It's like a whisper. It's like no one even noticed. Maybe a few people. Christmas is so counterintuitive to the way that we would invade enemy-occupied territory. I'm just going to say that for us today, because I know that many of us in here, if you were charged with having to devise a strategy, you'd be like me, and we're going to use some force, and we're going to do it in a way that the world's going to know who's got the power. And it's literally the opposite of what we would come up with. Christmas is God invading human history. And he's doing it with this stunning humility. And why I say stunning is because we are all so imprisoned with pride. Every single one of us, we are caught up with pride. Every single ugly thing that has happened in this world can be traced back to pride. Everything. C.S. Lewis would say it this way, It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. And it is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Every broken and sad thing can be traced back to pride. And isn't it, isn't it a beautiful thing? Like the human story goes like this. Everything was perfect and good and holy and righteous And then in in our perfection, in, in this perfect place, our first parents, Adam and Eve, accepts a lie. They are told a lie, and they believe it. And that lie is this. If you're going to be fulfilled, if you're going to get what you want in this life, if you're going to be happy in this life, you cannot trust God to give that to you. You have to step in the place of God for yourself. And they believe that lie. And so do you, and so do I. We do this all the time. That we don't trust God with our happiness. We don't trust God with our joy. We don't trust that God's going to make everything okay for us and provide for our needs. And so we typically grab the reins. I'm going to control my situation. I'm going I'm to steer this thing in the direction that I think it needs to go. And so we're not too far off from our, our, our first parents, right? Adam and Eve. But in that moment, the world was yet to be broken. It was perfect, and it was beautiful. And they, they bought into this lie. And it was pride and arrogance that ushered in sin into this perfect creation. And now, creation groans, Scripture would say. Creation is subject to futility, and in, in its bondage, it's, it's, it's faced with corruption. Like the world is a broken mess because of what's happened. And it's happened this way because of sinful pride. So isn't it just a little bit fitting that the human pride was the unraveling of everything and that God's way to make everything new again is going to come in a perfect display of the opposite. It's going to come in humility. So before Christmas can be about nostalgia and the lights and thinking about all your good memories and your traditions and watching cute hallmark movies and sweet little nativity scenes before christmas can be about all of that it's about god moving toward humanity it's about god moving toward us and not away from us and he does it in humility and he does it to remake the brokenness to fix what's been broken in, cre- in, in, in creation, the, what, to fix what's been caused by sinful pride. And he's do- he does it in a perfect display of humility. Our text that I want us to point to, just one verse, it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. This is Paul writing a letter to the church at Corinth, and he's speaking about generosity, Now, that's not exactly where we're going today, but the good thing about Paul and the way he wrote was everything was framed up in the gospel. Every single thing. And so what we want to be about is everything we teach, everything we say needs to be framed up in the gospel. And so as he's talking about people being generous, he goes ahead and just, I'm going to go ahead and preach a little bit of gospel to you. And so I want us to use that text... To, take, to, to get a glimpse of where we're going. And so verse 9, chapter 8 of verse 9, it says, um, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And so Paul frames the gospel for us here, and he, he frames it in the lens of riches and poverty. He says, here's the gospel, here's what it looks like. Every single person struggles with this issue of sinful pride, which means you are in poverty and Christ is rich. And he forsakes his riches, reaches into humanity, into all of your poverty and into all of your brokenness, and does a transaction, makes you rich in the process. So if you want to understand Jesus, if you want to try to even fathom Jesus, you've got to understand that he abandoned his riches. He was rich, he had everything, and he willingly became poor on so many levels. Became poor so that his poverty would be more than just an example for us to follow. That's not what Jesus did. Like, it's not just an example, but that it would actually have the power to transform the lives of, of a, com- of a community, of humanity. Like it, his, in his riches, stepping out of that into poverty, that actually gives us power. He puts on a display of power to transform the lives of humanity. And so how does this humility play out in the Christmas story? That's kind of where we're going today. I want to kind of show you that. and We're going we're gonna to look at some popular uh, snippets of, of Christmas scripture. But I want you to think about, just for a second, the, kind of the, the first character on the scene once the, once the nativity story begins to unfold, and that was this little young girl, Mary, who comes onto the scene. She's about the most marginalized person that you can be in her culture. And I'm not using like the word marginalized like we do today. It's kind of like white noise today. I'm not using it like that. I'm talking about really, really marginalized, a girl who is virtually voiceless, that doesn't have a voice in, in the world. She's around 15 years old, what we understand her to be at this time. Um, so she's mid-teenage years. The moment Gabriel comes to her to share this invasion strategy that God's going to bring. And he's like, okay, here's your role in this. Here's the plan. Here's how God's going to come in and overthrow the occupation and set about peace. And here's your role. Here's how you're going to play this. So she's around 15 years old at this time. And not only that, but she's a 15-year-old woman she's a 15 year old woman in a culture that wouldn't even acknowledge her testimony in a court of law imagine someone telling you that you're not human enough to provide a credible witness that you don't you don't equate to to enough humanity that your testimony your witness is worth anything that's what kind of culture Mary's in And so she's marginalized in her culture, but to compound the issue, her entire culture is marginalized. They are under the oppression of the Roman rule. And so not only is is Mary pushed to the margins, she's further pushed to the margins because her whole culture and her whole community is pushed to the margins. And we pick up her story in Luke chapter 1, in verse 26. It says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to, be man, to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said to this 15-year-old marginalized, voiceless girl, Greetings, O oh favored one. The Lord is with you. So here's the first character in our Christmas story. An impoverished voiceless, likely illiterate and uneducated teenage girl is the one who God would choose to carry the one who would come ultimately to crush the head of the enemy. That's the first person we pick up in the scene. And then there's Joseph. Think about this guy. The guy who would become the stepdad of the only unique begotten son of God. If you were God the Father and your plan was you had, to, you had to assign someone to be stepdad to your only unique begotten son who would come into the world to, to save everyone and to fix the brokenness, what credentials would you have for him? What are some of the things that you would require of him? And if you can't think about anything, I want you to consider those of you who have gone through the exercise of picking a daycare. Right? Like there's these things that you must have. There's these things that must happen. There's these, all of these things have to happen in order for you to even be qualified to care for my child. The one who's not the only begotten one. So how much more so would you think the qualifications would need to be for the guy that you're going to place over and the, the human authority of, of this child to be the stepdad of this child? If I have to pick the guy, there's at least a few things. He's going to be strong. He's going to be smart. He's going to be well-off. He's going to be well-networked and connected. He's going to know people. He's going to be wealthy. He's got to be a resourceful guy. Like, I'm not just plunging my only unique begotten son into a place where he's not going to be cared for. And that he's not going to be in, in a position to succeed. That's how I'm going to do it. But God chooses... A blue-collar carpenter. A guy who works with his hands. Who has an occupation that would leave him daily wondering if he was going to have enough to feed his family. That's the guy that God picks. His story is in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they had come together... his people from their sins. God picks the people that you and I probably would never pick. And that's in every single area of life. You think about what you'll do today. You think about what you'll do next week. And I want you to think about the people that you're going to choose to be a part of that. God picks the people that I wouldn't choose. Or think about the shepherds. I won't go into grave detail about the shepherds last, uh, last year at Advent, uh, we camped out here for a whole message, and so I would invite you to go back and just understand the backgrounds, uh, background of these shepherds that the that the angel would come and make a proclamation to. Um, these weren't just stand-up guys. These guys were. This is a group of people who lived in perpetual hopelessness. Perpetual hopelessness. Their job was to care the sheep. These sheep were likely the sheep that were used for the temple sacrifices, which is why they were out at night tending the sheep, tending the flock. Normally in that culture, think about John chapter 10, they would put a, they would put a, a, a watchman over the, over the sheepfold while the, the, the hired hand would watch the sheepfold while the shepherd would go and get rest for the night. If you guys recall that story where Jesus would come in and say, the hired hand don't care about the flock like the shepherd does. I'm the good shepherd. He talks about that in, in the book of John. And then, and then here we see that the shepherds are actually out at night, that there's no, there's no hired hand watching the flock for them because this is a special group of sheep. These are temple sacrifices. And so they had to take extra special care of them. So the shepherds were considered society's bottom of the barrel, that these guys were, were unclean. They were put in a category with tax collectors and with prostitutes. And the reason why is because they had to live a life with the flock. They never got to go to the temple. They never got to go to temple worship and be cleansed for their sins and go through the rituals and the ceremonies that it takes to become clean again. They never had that opportunity. So they lived in this perpetual state of uncleanness and hopelessness. And, the, and all of society would look at this group of people and like, we're just going to put them in this category. that they're not even... They're not even good enough. They're they're all around rough guys. And they were on the outside of the day-to-day religious activity. they were endlessly unclean by Jewish standards. And we see them in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with with great fear because when you, become, when you come before uh, God's anointed, God's sending one and you're unclean, it, great fear comes over you. And I love what happens. And the angel says, fear not. You don't have to be afraid anymore. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, not just the ones that the, the religious people pick, not just the ones that you and I are going to pick, but even you who are considered perpetually unclean, God... Has good news for you. You don't have to be afraid anymore. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And so we have God choosing this 15 year old peasant girl, this blue collar carpenter, as, as pivotal people in his story in this moment. And now the initial proclamation that Christ is born doesn't go to kings. It doesn't go to the religious elite and it doesn't go to the rich people and it doesn't go to that part of town. It comes to this part of town and it says, behold, I bring you good news. Can you see how God's kingdom is upside down? Can you, are you starting to see how he does business? He ushers in this kingdom, and he does it in absolute humility. In no way would you or I try to shatter our pride by walking this way, by choosing to do it this way, by choosing to go to those people. Or think about the wise men. I know what you're saying. I Well, hold on, Blake. Like, can you really like, say that the wise men um, are a display of humility within the Christmas story? They're, they're wise men. They're smart, right? Then they bring expensive gifts. So they're obviously financially stable. They have resources. So is, is, this, a, is this humility? But what makes the story so intriguing is that these guys were foreigners. They didn't belong in this region. They came from the, from the east. And although the promises of God throughout the entire Old Testament for a Messiah to come that Messiah was going to be for all nations. Not just for the nation of Israel, but for every nation. Every family on the earth will be blessed is what we learned in week one. But just like us, the Jewish people would always twist God's story to where it was exclusively for them. That the Messiah was going to come And it was for them and not those people. And so I love this picture. Sadly, we know this all too well. Right, America? We know this all too well. Well, You know what? Jesus is for us. He's, He's our Savior. He doesn't belong to those people. He's ours only. We know this. Sadly, we know this story all too well. And so you know what happens when one group of people think they're superior to another group of people. You see what happens all throughout God's story, and I see it today. And now the birth of the Messiah takes place, and God orchestrates these foreigners who could have been Arab, Persian, but were likely Babylonians. And their story is picked up in Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Foreigners. People on the outside. And in his humility, God says, you may call them less than. You might call them others. But I'm making a way for everyone to come. I'm making a way for every nation to come in through faith in this Messiah. It's not just exclusive to this group of people or that group of people. So God is working through the most unlikely people. The most unlikely people to communicate the reality that he opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's what he's communicating to us. Most importantly, think about this, just think about Jesus. If we're looking at Christmas as an ultimate display of humility in the midst of sinful pride, think about Jesus. Like, He didn't start as a man, as a human, and work His way up to God's status. You, you guys know that, right? It was actually backwards. And this is where the Christmas story gets crazy. When you, when you get a good handle on the incarnation, on, on God stepping into humanity... That's a step down. That's not a step up. When you get the idea of that, the reality that Jesus is fully God, 100% God, fully human, 100% human, he can feel aches and pains. He has flesh and blood. He has emotions. He deals with all of this stuff the way we do. You, You begin to see just how scandalous and how humble the Christmas story is. You get to see this here. And it's where we find that that the power that Christmas possesses to transform lives. That that the story of humility is is the power to transform lives. In Philippians chapter 2, we we see in in verse 5, Have this mind among you, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus will demonstrate humility by taking on human flesh, becoming human. Jesus is, listen, you've got to get this, He is the power and the perfection of the will of God. Everything that is perfect and powerful to God is in Christ Jesus. And he comes to us in human infancy. And all of its mess and all of its... Yeah, that's how he comes. That's how he shows up on the scene. And he does it through supernatural power, through the Spirit, in full humanity the one who holds the entire universe together in the palm of his hand by the word of his power would subject himself to marginalized and sinful humans. That's that's how he comes in. That's how he comes on the scene. The one who would give himself as the ultimate sacrifice on the cross. Wouldn't be born in a palace. Wouldn't be born in a hospital. Wouldn't even be born in a home. Among the stench of a stable in a manger. That's how he chooses to come. And he demonstrates humility by how he lived his life. Not just how he was born, but humility just oozes out of Jesus as he lives his life. His earliest memories, get this, his earliest memories would have him and his family being refugees in Egypt. Right, If you're God Almighty, 100% God, who is in control of everything, who holds the universe by the power of His Word, would subject yourself to that? But that's how Jesus came. His family, were, they were no different than what we saw on our televisions and in our news feeds for the past two years, three years, of the refugees that we saw in Syria. Just being pushed out of their homeland, pushed out of their country, because they were, people were wanting to harm them. And so they have to go away to a far place. That would be his first memories. The God-man Jesus would grow and learn and submit and obey like you and I would. Just like you and I did. Just like you and I would raise our kids to do. He deals with temptations just like you and I do. He faces rejection even from family and friends and even the people he came to rescue. Rejection. He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him and no beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised. He was rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. There's your Savior. There's your King. And there's God's strategy for coming to save the world, to come and push out the occupied forces, to come and set about peace. This is His means. It's nothing like I would have done. Not at all like my plan. So his birth, his life, were the epitome of humility. Like that was the perfect example of humility. And even in his death, we see humility. And I want to be clear with those of you who may be here, and and you embrace the Christmas story while rejecting the one who came to rescue you from your sin and from death. There's not two or three or four versions of Jesus. There's only one Jesus. There's only one true God. There's not just a baby Jesus, and there's not just a good teacher or or profound prophet Jesus. The same Jesus who laid His glory by... Who subjected himself to human birth in a lowly manger among the stench of animals is the same Jesus who emptied himself, became a bond servant, and was obedient even to the point of death. Even death on a cross for your sake. You can't have the Christmas Jesus without having the Good Friday Jesus. He's the same Jesus. Merry Christmas. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So where and all of this humility does the power to actually transform lives exist? You've heard me say that. The Christmas story has the power to transform lives. Where? Where do we see that? Where's that at? So what happens in the telling of the good news of Jesus, the gospel, Of Jesus is not just a transfer of information so please don't don't leave here today uh, with some some new things that you might know or might not know or just some more profound thoughts because the Christmas story isn't all about that the good news isn't all about just a transfer of information and 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 don't hear me also say that you know what Jesus was the the perfect example of humility so look at him and go try to be humble because that's not the message I'm giving today either the reality of Christmas itself, the story of the gospel itself, humbles us. And so humble yourselves under the story of Christmas. When the good news of Jesus engages the heart, when the good news of Jesus, the gospel engages my heart, and the soul of, of someone uh, who's got a hard and prideful heart, we become, our souls become softened. It becomes hearts of flesh. It, it humbles us, the story does. If you're a follower of Jesus today, it's because at some point you heard the good news of his rescue and it broke you. That's how you became a believer. That's how you placed your faith in Jesus. You heard the good news that I'm a sinful and prideful person who buys into the lie that, that God is not enough for me. And that That good news moved on you and broke you. Broke your heart, broke your spirit, broke your soul. Humbled you. That's what the story of Christmas does. The question that should always be on your mind, that should always be on my mind, is what kind of God would do this for me? Who is this God that he would do this for me? It's this realization that you don't deserve his grace. That there's no possible way that you can earn his grace. It's being brought to this place where you've been humbled and your only response is surrender and embrace. That's it. That's the only response that we can have to the gospel, to the Christmas story. And this Christmas story, the, the reality of the good news of Christmas, it redeems us. Christmas is this invitation to get an honest look into one another, into your, into your hearts, into individually, but get honest and real and transparent with yourself and get a glimpse of your heart. If we're really honest, if I'm really honest, there's some really embarrassing and really shameful things that go on between here and here. I want to be honest with you. And, and I, am, I am deathly afraid of some of my closest friends knowing some of these things about me because I'm afraid they won't be my friend anymore. Anybody else deal with that? The lust and greed and anger and unforgiveness and prejudice, not to mention the idolatry. This is what we struggle with as humans who are sinfully, sinful and prideful. So think of it like this. Our hearts, our souls, they carry the stench of a manger. They carry the stench of a stable. And Christmas has the power to reveal to you and me that Jesus in his greatness and in his power and perfection willingly made the manger his bed. He willingly moved into that position. So Jesus doesn't move away from you. He moves towards you. He's not offended by your sin. He came to cross hell and death and everything to obliterate sin, to obliterate your offense, to save you. He's not offended by what you what goes on here and what goes on there. He wants to rescue you from what goes on here and what goes on there. And even though your heart reeks of sin and sadness and brokenness, he's moving towards you. And the reality of Christmas compels us to go, to move, to, to become missionaries. That's, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 if you can get there quickly. If not, it'll be on the screens. Um, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. So for those of us who've received the love of Christ, we are now controlled By Christ. Some of your translations may say compelled by Christ. Because we have concluded this that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The entire Christmas story is a mission from God. It is a mission from God to reach into humanity to save those who would be otherwise hopeless in their sin and in their brokenness. It is the beautiful picture of missionary Jesus to come and step into humanity. I don't know a whole lot about the new heavens and the new earth. The Bible doesn't give us a lot of information about what heaven's going to be like and what perfection's going to be like and what the new earths are going to be like. But I do know this it's not like my neighborhood. It's not like your neighborhood. It's not like where we live. It's not a place of sickness and addiction and poverty and brokenness. It's not a place of racism and prejudice. It's not a place where people use other people and exploit other people. That's, not, that's what I do know about heaven. And I also know that heaven is a place of life. It is a place of light and beauty and perfection and glory and Jesus leaves it. He steps away from it. What about your world? Is it everything that you've made it to be, built it to be, planned for it to be? Are you willing to step away from it? See, the the love of Christ compels us. It controls us. He came as the ultimate missionary and He contextualized with us, learned our culture, learned our language, lived among us. The Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. It's how uh, one translation of John would say, Christmas blows up the notion that there's an us and a them. It it, it completely wipes the slate clean to where there's not those people and then there's, there's us. Christmas Tears that idea down. And even if you don't admit it, even if you're not honest enough with yourself to admit it, you have those people in your life. I have those people in my life. And I've got some heartbreaking news for you. This means that you are those people to somebody. I am those people to somebody. And Christmas kills that idea. It says that God doesn't have those people. You are not those people to the living God. You're not. So the invitation, and this is where we'll close, for those who've embraced the idea and the reality of both Good Friday Jesus and Christmas Jesus, go, because we have a going God. Our God is a missionary God. And so we too, through the love of Christ, allow him to control us and move us and completely interrupt our plans, completely interrupt our worlds. We have to be willing to be open and subjected to his authority, his rule, because he loves us and he knows what's best for us. And the invitation for those who love the idea of Christmas Jesus, but you just can't get your hands around Good Friday, Jesus, bloody Jesus on the cross for your sake. You can't get your hands around that one. I want you to realize this. There is only one true God, one, and he is Yahweh God. He is Lord Almighty, and he comes full of both grace and truth. And he does so because we desperately need both. We desperately need the truth and we desperately need the grace. Merry Christmas. I'm going to pray for us, and David's going to come up and lead us in a time of communion, so would you pray with me? And Father, we come to you this morning. Thank you so much for this Christmas story. Thank you so much for the reality of Christmas. Lord, we want to honor you with the way we acknowledge and celebrate this time that that our culture and our society has has set aside to to celebrate the the coming of the Savior of the world. Father, the most obvious thing is that it's not a seasonal reality in our lives, but that this uh, has everything to do with how our lives will be lived. So, Father, I pray that Jesus would be... I pray that Jesus would be a reality to some in this room today maybe even for the first time but for those of us Father who know Jesus who claim to follow and love Jesus Lord we thank you and we praise you for the reminder that the minute any kind of pride whatsoever wells up in us that that is not from you but you are a God of humility. But the most important point in history, when we needed you to flex your power the most, you came in the form of a baby, in full human form, and all of the brokenness and all of the sin and all of the sadness, and you came to make all of those sad things untrue. And so I pray over this room And each individual life that today, right now, in this moment, would you make those sad things come untrue in the name of your son, Jesus, not in any power that anyone else might have or the smart, clever words that someone else may have, but through the power and grace that comes through your son, Christ. God, I pray for those in this room who've struggled up to this point to receive forgiveness who feel like you just cannot cover that thing. Lord, I pray right now that the reality of the cross and the full grace of Jesus Christ would cover them. God, would you show them who you are and just how powerful you are to overcome anything, any obstacle, any sin, any brokenness. Lord, we love you. And I don't say that just to conclude a prayer, but Father, we truly love you. Would you help us to love you? We truly believe in you. Would you help us to believe in you? And we truly want to follow you, so would you help us and and equip us to follow you wherever you might call us, to whatever person you might call us unto, to whatever group of people, whatever neighborhood, And may we be found faithful and obedient on that day when the second advent has come. And we ask these things in your son's holy name. Amen.